High schoolers are busy, but no one's too busy to help fight cancer. The Leukemia and Lymphoma Society is looking for their next student visionaries of the year. Could that be your child? High schoolers who participate in this seven-week philanthropic leadership development program gain valuable life skills like project management, communication, financial literacy, and entrepreneurship. Forming strong teams behind them, they fundraise for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society in honor of a pediatric blood cancer survivor right in their local community. Most importantly, this campaign is an opportunity for high schoolers to engage in meaningful work within their community and make a real impact on the lives of blood cancer patients and their families. Sound like something your child might be interested in? You can learn more about Student Visionaries of the Year or even nominate a student at lls.org students. That's lls.org slash students. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. You must Welcome to another episode of You Must Remember This, the podcast dedicated to exploring the secrets and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. I'm your host, Karina Longworth, and this is another episode in our ongoing series, Fake News, Fact-Checking Hollywood Babylon. This isn't news. This is totally unfounded gossip. It's a long way from Hollywood. Criticized for dealing too frankly with such themes as sex and nudity. Hollywood. Babylon. In the first half of this season, we had special celebrity guests reading from the pages of Hollywood Babylon. This season, we are looking to the post-celebrity future, in which all actors will be replaced by digital replicas, and all big-name podcast guests will be generated by artificial intelligence. So here, once again, is the anger bot, 
Reading an edited excerpt from Hollywood Babylon. Lupe Velez had been a part of the Hollywood scene since the late 20s, when the go-getting teenager had come up from Mexico City to conquer the movies. She was spotted by Doug Fairbanks, who gave her the lead opposite him in the gaucho, and she was on her way. Lupe soon earned the pet name Mexican Spitfire, for her irrepressible gaiety and fiery temper. Her first affair was with John Gilbert. In 1929 she took up with her wolf song leading man, young buck Gary Cooper. Theirs was a wild affair. When a startling specimen of manhood named Johnny Weissmuller arrived in Hollywood still wet from his LA Olympic swimming triumph, Lupe zeroed in, and Tarzan found a mate in a tempestuous union that lasted till their divorce in 1938. Always the child, Lupe just could not understand why Johnny would get mad when she would flash her charms at Hollywood parties by flinging her dress over her head. She was always innocent of lingerie. Their most public tiff occurred one night at Ciro's when Johnny tossed a food-laden table at Lupe's meowing puss. The love-hate madness of their intense passion often left marks on Weissmuller's godlike torso. The makeup man on MGM's Tarzan sets had his work cut out for him. It was a rare Hollywood example of married amour foo. After the inevitable divorce from Weissmuller, man-addict Lupe's tortured flings were frequent and brief. From stars her sights slipped to featured players to cowboys to stuntmen to the parasitic crowd of Hollywood he-men hangers-on, professional older dame-pleasers, studs on the take whose gig was gigolo. Her career also skidded from A's to B's, to quickie Mexican spitfire farces with Leon Errol, in which she served chili con Lupe parodies of her own spicy persona. Then her period stopped and she realized that Harold Ramond, her latest, had knocked her up. Big deal. Call for Dr. Kilcare, the joke name for Tinseltown's leading abortionist? Forget it. Lupe, the gyrating cunt-flashing Hollywood party girl, was in her heart of hearts a devout Mexican Catholic. She could not bear to snuff the gigolo's fetus within her. Rather, she would doom herself to eternal torments by committing her own murder, by herself. Lupe invited her two best gal pals to share a last supper. After the Mexican feast, over brandy and cigarillos, Lupe fessed up. The Spitfire found herself alone again at 3 a.m. in the big fake hacienda, on North Rodeo Drive, and for the last time she ascended the wrought iron staircase in her silver lamy gown. Like the rest of it, unpaid for. Lupe was by now completely zonked by debt. She penciled a farewell note on a memo pad on the night table, by the white gold telephone. To Harold. May God forgive you, and forgive me, too. But I prefer to take my life away and our babies, before I bring him with shame or killing him. Lupe. Then, on the back of the sheet, she penciled an afterthought. How could you Harold, fake such a great love for me and our baby when all the time you didn't want us? I see no other way out for me. So goodbye, and good luck to you. Love. Lupe. She opened the bottle of Sakinal that stood on the night table, picked up the water glass, then swallowed the 75 little tickets to oblivion. She stretched out on the satin bed beneath the great crucifix, hands joined on her breast in a last prayer, dosed her eyes and envisioned the next day's front page photo's sleeping beauty. And, indeed, in the next day's examiner, 
Luella Parsons described the still life discovered at Casa Felicia's, North Rodeo Drive. Lupe was never lovelier as she lay there, as if slumbering. Looking like a child taking nappy, like a good little girl. The actual scene had been something else. When Juanita, the chambermaid, had opened the bedroom door at 9, the morning after the suicide, the bed was empty. The aroma of scented candles, almost, but not quite masked a stench recalling that, left by Skid Row derelicts. Juanita traced the vomit trail from the bed, followed the spotty track over to the orchid-tiled bathroom. There she found her mistress, Senorita Velez. Head jammed down in the toilet bowl, drowned. The huge dose of sleeping pills had not been fatal in the expected fashion. It had mixed recherously with the Spitfire's Mexi Spice last supper. The gut action, her stomach churning, had revived the dazed Lupe. Violently sick, an ultimate fastidiousness drove her to stagger towards the sanitary sanctum of the Sal de Bain, where she slipped on the tiles and plunged headfirst into her Egyptian, chartreuse onyx, hush flush model deluxe. The claim that Lupe Velez drowned in her own toilet after running to throw up a combination of Mexican food and sleeping pills has become one of Hollywood Babylon's stickiest stories. In 1965, the year Hollywood Babylon was first published and then shortly thereafter banned in the U.S., Andy Warhol made a movie called Lupe, in which Edie Sedgwick plays the Mexican actress and is seen dying with her head in a toilet. References to this sight and manner of death have since popped up throughout popular culture. It even became a teachable moment on the 90s sitcom, Frasier. Ever heard of Lupe Velez? Who? Lupe Velez, the movie star in the 30s. Well, her career hit the skids, so she decided she'd make one final stab at immortality. She figured if she couldn't be remembered for her movies, she'd be remembered for the way she died. And all Lupe wanted was to be remembered. So, she plans this lavish suicide. Flowers, candles, silk sheet, white satin gown, full hair and makeup, the works. She takes the overdose of pills, lays on the bed, and imagines how beautiful she's going to look on the front page of tomorrow's newspaper. Unfortunately, the pills don't set well with the enchilada combo plate she sadly chose as her last meal. <laughs> she stumbles to the bathroom, trips and goes headfirst into the toilet, and that's how they found her. Is there a reason you're telling me this story? Yes. Even though things may not happen like we planned, they can work out anyway. Remind me again how it worked for Loopy. Last scene with her head in the toilet. All she wanted was to be remembered. Will you ever forget that story? Lupe Velez did die of a suicide. But the toilet thing? I'll cut to the chase. Anger completely made that up. Hollywood Babylon's main claims about Lupe are as follows. That she was a man addict and exhibitionist. That she decided to commit suicide as a way to deal with the twin problems of having been abandoned by the father of her unborn child and her enormous personal debt. 
and that despite her attempts to stage manage her death scene, she ended up drowning in her own toilet after throwing up a last meal of Mexican food. As you might guess, today's episode will involve sorting through a lot of unexamined racism, Kenneth Angers, and also the unexamined racism of the Hollywood press of the 1930s and 40s, which wrote most of what remains on the record in English about Lupe. Velez's movies were actually more examined than you might think. Join us, won't you, for the story of Lupe Velez. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What's the first thing you'd do if you had an extra hour in your day? Go for a run, take a nap, read a book, show up for a friend? I think I would use my extra hour to sleep an hour later, or maybe spend more time at the gym. A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. The question is, for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and make it a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you, so you can do more of it. I recently started seeing a new therapist with the explicit goal of trying to figure out what I want in the short term and the long term. I've been in fight-or-flight mode for so long that I've kind of lost track of any goals or ambition that I once had. A therapist can be there for you in times of crisis, even if you have, like me, rather diffuse needs. Either way, a therapist can help you understand the way that you feel and offer strategies for moving forward. If you're thinking of starting therapy, why not give BetterHelp a try? It's entirely online, so you don't have to sit in traffic to get to your appointment. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com YMRT today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash YMRT. Lupe Velez was not discovered by Douglas Fairbanks. Lupe had gone to work on the stage in Mexico City as a teenager to support her family when her father disappeared amidst the Mexican Revolution. She was brought to Hollywood by Richard Bennett, father of actresses Constance and Joan Bennett, who thought she might be right for the part of a singer in a play called The Dove. She didn't get that part, but Bennett, feeling responsible for Lupe's welfare, threw her a couple of bones until she got a bite. He got her a role in a live show he hosted called The Hollywood Review, in which Lupe would appear alongside an aging Fanny Bryce. From there, she shot a screen test for MGM, and based on that test, was signed by producer Hal Roach to appear in slapsticky silent comedies. It was only after appearing in several such Roach shorts that Lupe was cast in The Gaucho. 
The Gaucho was a major hit, and Lupe graduated from Roach's comparatively low-rent studio to a lucrative contract at United Artists, where she would immediately be cast in prestigious films made by some of the greatest filmmakers of a couple different generations, such as Lady of the Pavements, directed by D.W. Griffith, Wolf Song, directed by Victor Fleming, and Where East is East, directed by Todd Browning and co-starring Lon Chaney Sr. Her highest salary at the studio would be $2,000 a week, about $30,000 a week in 2018 dollars, which is notable given Anger's claims that she was suicidal over debt 15 years later. Anger is also incorrect to say that Velez's first affair in Hollywood was with John Gilbert. She and Gilbert dated in 1931, after Velez had ended a long, on-again, off-again relationship with Gary Cooper. In The Wolf Song, the film on which she and Gary Cooper met, Lupe wore a silver bra and panties costume, skimpier than many modern bikinis. In a scene in which he waded in a river, Gary Cooper wore even less. Their romance continued for three and a half up and down years. She staked her claim on Cooper by accompanying him to the set of Morocco, where she physically blocked star Marlena Dietrich from flirting with her man off camera by sitting on his lap. But it wasn't all so playful. There are reports, unsubstantiated, although believed by many, that Lupe stabbed Cooper with kitchen utensils and once shot at him with a revolver. By 1931, Cooper was exhausted, at least as much from his grueling schedule at Paramount as from the relationship, but he ensured a break with Lupe by sneaking off for a five-month trip to Europe without her. Paramount had decided that the constant gossip about the couple was no good for Cooper's image. And Cooper's mother, Alice Cooper, had forcefully objected to Lupe for years. Gary finally gave in to maternal meddling from his mother and paternal meddling from his studio and gave up on Lupe. Cooper swiftly married another woman, and Lupe herself was not single for long. But Lupe would maintain that Gary Cooper had been the love of her life. Lupe played a wide variety of characters across her few silent films. Sometimes her ethnicity was part of her character, as in Wolf Song, Beginning with Tiger Rose, a Rin Tin Tin vehicle in 1929, she successfully transitioned to sound film, in part because she could sing a little and could really sell a musical number. But her accent limited her casting in talkies. And about the time when it became clear that talkies were around to stay, the media coverage of Lupe began playing up her accent and her foreignness. Reporters routinely quoted Lupe phonetically. So, for instance, when Lupe said the phrase, there is five or six, a reporter typed, 
They ease five or sees, emphasizing the idea that Lupe's grasp of the English language was insufficient. In fact, she had been speaking English since she first went to a convent school in Texas at age 12. On screen, she would sometimes sound extra foreign thanks to the pidgin English in which many of her parts were written. Her best films slyly reveal the extent to which this was a put-on. In the pre-code yarn Hell Harbor, she played Anita, a young woman whose father announces he's going to sell her into marriage to a rich merchant. Anita schemes to get out of this predicament by any means necessary. Here she is asking for help from a male friend. That boat is bringing the devil to this island. No. Yes, and you must help me kill him. Kill him? Yes. What for? What did he do to you? Well, I tell you. Last night, uh-huh. my father sent me to Joseph. No. Yes. What? And these men give money to Joseph to buy me. I tell you, I will not marry Joseph even if I have to kill this American. Kill him? Yes. Why? I don't blame you. Brigadi, I'll help you do it. Good. Here she's speaking basically correct English with a natural-sounding accent. This movie doesn't make fun of Lupe for her ethnicity, but it does play up her naivete and notions of quote-unquote island justice. In this film, in which Lupe gives what was considered one of the best performances of her early talkie career, her character Anita gets into a fight with her father, and Lupe is quite convincing, shoving, biting, and threatening with a knife a much larger male actor. Maybe Lupe was too convincing in scenes like this. On screen and off, Lupe Velez would now be defined by tantrums, and physical aggression. The idea of her as a dominating presence would take on racial dimensions, even in the Spanish language press. A paper in San Antonio, writing a year after Lupe and Gary Cooper broke up, claimed that in the midst of that relationship, Lupe would parade her white boyfriend around like he was, quote, a rare animal, and that he was, quote, under the thumb of the nutty and childish Lupe. This was absolutely tied to a stereotype about her ethnicity, but it doesn't seem like it was wholesale manufactured or projected onto Lupe without her consent. It seems like it came out of not just what was imagined Mexican women were like, but what Lupe herself could, on occasion, actually be like. If it had all been manufactured, the manufacturers, i.e. the studios, would be able to control it. That they weren't became evident during Lupe's relationship with Tarzan actor Johnny Weissmuller. After Hell Harbor, Lupe was dropped by United Artists. According to her biographer, 
Lupe's relationship with the studio ended because they decided to focus their attention on another Mexican actress, Dolores Del Rio. I haven't been able to verify that this was truly the case. What is clear is that Del Rio and Velez's careers at United Artists overlapped for several years, and that in 1930, around the time Velez left the studio, Del Rio married MGM art director Cedric Gibbons and left United Artists for RKO. Lupe soon landed on her feet, too. Universal hired her to play the center of a love triangle in the William Wyler film The Storm, written by John Huston, and then they cast her as the Chinese victim of human trafficking in East is West, a film which was simultaneously made in Spanish, also starring Lupe. She got to do the same double act in English and Spanish versions of Tolstoy's Resurrection. Her career was thus booming in 1932, when she met the only man she'd end up marrying. Johnny Weissmuller was an Olympic gold medal winning swimmer turned Hollywood action star. He was incredibly handsome, with sort of a proto-surfer look, and his body was insane. In 1932, he was selected by MGM to star in an adaptation of the Edgar Rice Burroughs stories about Tarzan. The first of these films, Tarzan the Ape Man, premiered in New York in March 1932. Lupe went to the premiere, and realizing that she and the movie's hunky star were staying in the same hotel, she called his room. He thought he was being pranked and hung up. They began seeing each other, but Johnny had a wife, who he wasn't able to get rid of for a year and a half. As soon as he was legally single, in October 1933, Johnny and Lupe married in Reno, near where she was shooting the film Hot Pepper on location. Lupe and Johnny's attraction appears to have been mostly physical. Certainly, in every other way, they were a mismatch. He was a conservative health nut. She lived in nightclubs and on dance floors and smoked and drank. All he seemed to be interested in, recreation-wise, was golf. Gossip columns soon began to fill with reports of their very public spats. Velez's biographer believes a version of the story told in Hollywood Babylon, in which a spin on a dance floor revealed Lupe to be out sans panties, an infraction for which she was punished when Johnny flung his dinner plate on her lap. I haven't seen a source I trust for this tale, but certainly there were other incidents that did make it into more or less reputable columns with a frequency that almost suggested Lupe and Johnny liked the attention their volatile marriage attracted. Lupe filed for divorce less than a year into the marriage, charging Johnny with mental cruelty and violent physical outbursts. And then she retracted her filing. By the fall of 1934, they were back to the kinds of public squabbles that looked like stunts. At the airport, they would have meaningless fights over which color taxi to take. 
One fight supposedly spilled out of a hotel room, with Johnny chasing Lupe down a hallway in the middle of the night. The husband so enraged at the wife that he didn't realize he had forgotten to put on pants. Lupe told gossip columnists that some of what appeared in gossip columns about her wasn't true. It's hard enough to make a marriage last in Hollywood without having lies told about you, she insisted, speaking to a gossip columnist. Your business was humming, but now you're falling behind. Your teams are buried in manual work, it's taking forever to close the books, Getting one source of truth is like pulling teeth. If this is you, you should know these three numbers. 36,000, 25, 1. 36,000. That's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, streamlining accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. One, because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your KPIs, key performance indicators, in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need, all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist, designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free, at netsuite.com slash remember. That's netsuite.com slash remember to get your own KPI checklist. NetSuite dot com slash remember. To what extent were Johnny and Lupe's spats and Lupe's overall persona as a wildcat manufactured for publicity? Based on what I've read and my gut instincts, I think the answer to that question is probably somewhat. However, it seems clear that Lupe's volatility wasn't a switch that could be turned on or off. Because when the studios started having real incentive to rein their stars in, instead of taming her persona and continuing to work steadily, Lupe continued to make headlines about being out of control and worked less. Lupe made just one film in Hollywood between 1935 and 1939. What had changed, clearly, was that the production code began to be enforced in 1934, and said enforcement dovetailed with the particularly volatile early years of Lupe and Johnny's troubled marriage. Lupe had shot a number of films which fell under the old rules that were released that year, including the boxing comedy Palooka and Strictly Dynamite, both of which co-starred Jimmy Durante, and Laughing Boy, in which Lupe starred opposite Ramon Navarro as a Native American girl who is shunned by her tribe for her sexuality. But once the new code became enforced, there was probably less demand for Lupe's sexy persona. 
There also may have been some fatigue at the studios with Lupe's public persona, which now was built in large part on her supposed marital discord. The kind of thing the studios were supposedly trying to pretend wasn't happening in Hollywood now that the Hayes office had cleaned everything up. During the second half of the 1930s, Lupe made a few films in England and one in Mexico, which allowed Lupe to return to her birth country for the first time since leaving for Hollywood. She also did some stage work in New York. Later, she would admit that she took a lot of work away from home because she didn't know how to solve the problems in her marriage. These problems came to an end in 1939, when Johnny came home from a Tarzan location shoot and found that his beloved dog had died while he was gone. He believed Lupe had poisoned the dog because she was jealous of how much affection Johnny gave the animal. In retaliation, Johnny snapped the neck of Lupe's beloved pet parrot, packed up his stuff, and left Lupe for good. Velez's biographer gives this story, which was related by Johnny's son from a subsequent marriage, full credence. I have a hard time believing Lupe Velez, who loved and collected animals, would purposely kill one. In any case, the drama continued in the divorce court, where Lupe vowed, I'd rather die than have my marriage go on as it was. The judge hearing the case showed a shocking lack of seriousness about the proceedings. When Lupe claimed Johnny had a habit of fiercely insulting her, the judge said, What sort of names did he call his sweet Tootsie Wootsie? When Lupe recounted a story that ended with Johnny threatening to break her neck, the judge tisked, he just couldn't forget he was playing Tarzan, could he? Though the couple had already made a property and spousal support settlement, the court refused to acknowledge it because, quote, a young woman capable of earning her own living and who doesn't want a man ought not to want his money. Newspaper reporters who related these events further condescended to Lupe by spelling her pronunciation of her husband's name phonetically in a way that exaggerated her accent. Johnny was spelled J-O-H-N-E-E-E. Lupe had entered the Johnny Weissmiller marriage as the bigger star, but by the time she was granted a divorce, her career had slowed to a crawl. She would get a new lease on stardom in 1939, the year of the divorce, with an unexpected hit called The Girl from Mexico. Lupe starred as Carmelita, a nightclub singer who is brought to New York by an American businessman named Dennis, who needs a singer for a radio promotion. Carmelita becomes involved in a love triangle with Dennis and his uber-wasp fiancé, Elizabeth which ends, much to the chagrin of Dennis's meddling Aunt Della, with Dennis and Carmelita saying I do. 
The girl from Mexico would make so much money for RKO that the studio began churning out sequels. Lupe would star in a total of seven films as Carmelita, and all but the first included the phrase Mexican Spitfire in the title. The first sequel, called simply Mexican Spitfire, features Carmelita causing professional trouble for Dennis as soon as they return from their honeymoon. But in this, like most of the other films in the series, Carmelita is pushed to misbehave by Elizabeth, who continues to hang around looking for a chance to pounce on Dennis, and by the pressure Carmelita feels trying to adjust to her husband's very white, moneyed Manhattan world. In each film, Carmelita is antagonized by Elizabeth and Dennis's aunt Della, who frequently makes implicitly racist comments about Carmelita's unfitness for marriage to her nephew, often by contrasting her birth and breeding to that of Elizabeth. Here, in the first scene of Mexican Spitfire, Della tells her husband why she's scheming with Elizabeth to get rid of Carmelita. When I think of Dennis jilting a lovely girl like Elizabeth to marry that little Mexican wildcat, I can hardly contain myself. Well, do the best you can, sweetie pie. And what's keeping Elizabeth? Elizabeth? For the love of Mike, she's not coming down here, is she? Why not? Well, because you don't ask a former fiancé to welcome home the girl who eliminated her in the semifinals. Elizabeth isn't out of the running yet. What? That little Mexican singer may have pulled the wool over your eyes, but I haven't accepted the marriage yet. Well, this is a fine time to object when they're returning from their honeymoon. Elizabeth Price can trace her family back to the Pilgrims. She's real Plymouth rock stock. Then Elizabeth shows up, and the two white women confirm their plan. Elizabeth, dear, are you sure you forgive Dennis? You oughtn't to, you know. He's behaved very badly. No, there's nothing to forgive, really. I never figure that he's married to Carmelita. I still feel he's engaged to me. And he will be. Of course, the little wildcat may scratch a little. But we'll clip her claws. <laughs> in the Mexican Spitfire movies, Lupe's character anticipates the dynamic in I Love Lucy between Lucy Ricardo and Ricky. If Lucy had been an entertainer from south of the border and married to a white American man instead of the other way around. These movies played all of the stereotypes about fiery Mexicans for comedy, but they also played racism for comedy and ridicule. The viewer always understands that Elizabeth and Della, the racist white women working against Carmelita solely on the basis of their ignorance about her ethnicity, are the villains. Though Carmelita is often loud and boisterous and sometimes creates chaos that could easily be avoided, the viewer is made to think that she is ultimately charming and that it's the white women whose values are out of whack that, clearly, interracial marriage is better than the inbred alternative. These films implicitly critiqued women like Alice Cooper, who insisted that the Mexican Lupe was not good enough for her son Gary. Lupe may have played to the stereotypes held by women like Alice Cooper, but ultimately, the movies defanged those women's fears. The Mexican Spitfire films may have even served as a sly corrective to the media coverage of Lupe's interracial romances, 
in which she was often painted as a white fetishist who sought out perfect physical specimens of whiteness that she could trot around. Compared to that, the movies normalized the idea of a Mexican woman married to a white American man. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage, to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is here to help you grow, whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits. Shopify helps you sell everywhere, from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 15% better on average compared to other other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash odyssey podcast all lowercase go to shopify.com slash odyssey podcast now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in shopify.com slash odyssey podcast after the girl from mexico in 1939 rko secured lupe's services for the mexican spitfire series indefinitely at a salary that adjusted for inflation would total $27,000 a week. The last film Lupe completed in the series was released in the summer of 1943, but playing Carmelita had made her enough of a bankable talent in B-screwball comedies that she spent the length of the franchise making other movies too, including a film I'm dying to see called Ladies' Day, in which she plays an actress who marries a Red Sox pitcher and gives him the yips. Lupe filmed 12 films in less than four years, which was a long period to work at that pace. Then she rounded out 1943 by leaving Hollywood to film an adaptation of Emile Zola's Nana in Mexico. This couldn't have been further from the screwball persona Lupe had been cashing in on for the previous four years, and audiences weren't enthusiastic about it. Lupe returned to Los Angeles in early 1944, intending to take a break. Whether or not she knew that she had made her last film is unclear. Her biographer doesn't detail what she spent the next year doing, but it apparently wasn't working. Eleven months after finishing her commitments in Mexico, Lupe announced that she was engaged to marry Harold Raymond. Raymond was born in Austria, had fled the Nazis, studied medicine in Paris, and had ended up in the U.S. on a refugee program. By the time he met Lupe, Raymond was working at Warner Brothers dubbing movies into French, and trying to launch a career as an actor. 
Sometime in the fall of 1944, Lupe realized that she was pregnant. Raymond learned of her condition, he would say later, in early December, after the engagement was announced. He claimed that once he knew about the pregnancy, he told Lupe he did love her and want to marry her, but he could not marry her right away. There were reports that he agreed to a quote-unquote fake marriage in order to make sure Lupe's child was not a bastard. Later, Raymond would say that he might have used that phrase, but only because he was not articulate in English, which was at best his third language. But Lupe gave him no benefit of the doubt. She announced that the engagement was off. On the night of December 12, 1944, Lupe cooked dinner at home. Not the Mexican feast that Anger invented, but squab stuffed with wild rice, which she ate with her longtime secretary, Beulah Kinder. Lupe was visited later that night at home by her friend, actress Estelle Taylor. Lupe was upset. I'm so tired of it all. I don't know what I'll do with myself, she told Taylor. Ever since I was a baby, I've been fighting. I've never met a man with whom I didn't have to fight to exist. Here, as in the Mary Astor case, it appears Anger went to the trouble of looking up a quote in a newspaper and then added what he wanted to believe his subject also said. In this case, the part of Lupe's confession about not wanting to murder, that is, abort, her baby, can be traced to no published source other than Hollywood Babylon. Taylor stayed with Lupe until after 3 a.m. Lupe watched Taylor's car drive away. Then she went to her bedroom. She took 75 tablets of Secanol, which she had been using as a sleeping aid for a decade. She swallowed the pills with brandy and lay down in her bed. She never woke up. Her body was found the next morning, not by a maid named Juanita, as Anger has it, but by her friend and secretary, Beulah. According to Beulah, the corpse lay in bed clad in silk pajamas, with one hand outstretched toward the nightstand, where an open bottle of pills and a few scattered tablets lay. In other words, contrary to Anger's claims, unless Beulah was in on a cover-up or someone moved the body and did an incredible clean-up job before Beulah got there, no one saw any evidence that Lupe had been awakened by the need to vomit. On the contrary, she appeared to have died while still in the process of taking the pills that would kill her. Detective Clinton H. Anderson was the first to arrive from the Beverly Hills Police Department. Sixteen years later, he wrote about his first impression of the body. She looked so small in that outsized bed that we thought at first she was a doll. Anderson wrote a memoir about his police work years after Lupe's death, but years before Hollywood Babylon. 
if he had found Velez with her head in the toilet or had seen any evidence that her body had been moved, what incentive would he have had to not write about it? Wouldn't it have made him look like a better detective who led a more interesting life? Similarly, the autopsy that was performed the day after Lupe's body was found declared that she had died from secondol ingestion as a result of a love affair. If she had, in fact, drowned in her own vomitous toilet water, why would the coroner have covered it up? Lupe was not, at the time of her death, under contract to a studio. She had no friends in places high enough to have bought a cover-up of her true cause of death. As for Hollywood Babylon's other claim to the motive of Lupe's suicide, that she was in debt, this seems to be more racism on the part of anger. Though Velez's career was at a transition point when she died, she still had considerable assets. She owned the mansion in which she lived, and she had a jewelry collection that was extremely valuable. If she had been in debt, she would have easily been able to quietly sell a couple of necklaces to pay her creditors. But that wasn't necessary. When Lupe's estate was probated, it was revealed to be worth $200,000 after her creditors had been paid and before her jewels, furs, and other belongings were auctioned off. $200,000 in 2018 dollars would be equivalent to nearly $3 million. There was only one thing Luella Parsons and everyone else who disseminated information about Lupe's death would have had a reason to cover up, and that was the potential real father of Lupe's baby. Lupe's family and some of her friends believed the father had not been Harold Raymond, but Gary Cooper, who Lupe openly told people close to her had been the love of her life. Robert Slatzer, a studio publicist who had a history of revealing unknown details about stars, such as a secret wedding he claimed he had had in Mexico with Marilyn Monroe, also claimed he asked Cooper if he could have been the father of Lupe's baby, and Cooper had said, Could have been. Could have been. If Lupe Velez had really killed herself because she knew Gary Cooper was the father of her baby and that he would never acknowledge their child, that would be something that Luella Parsons would have had incentive to cover up. And if any of the other disgusting details Anger printed about Velez's death had been true, it's possible Cooper would have used his power to get the police, the coroner, and the gossip columnists to sanitize the story so that there was no chance it reflected back on him. The way Parsons and her kin worked was that you usually had to make a trade to get a story you didn't like silenced or sanitized. Cooper could have offered Luella Parsons another story, a tip about himself or someone else, in order to ensure Luella would not print that Lupe drowned in her toilet. But he probably didn't, because Lupe Velez almost definitely did not drown in her toilet. It looks to me 
like Kenneth Anger, had no inside knowledge of Lupe Velez's life or death, because if he did, he would have mentioned that all of her friends thought she was pregnant with Gary Cooper's baby. And he didn't. Instead, he invented a racist's grotesque and demeaning fantasy, which, as we've seen, is sort of par for the course when it comes to Hollywood Babylon. We'll have one more episode next week, and then we'll be taking a week off for the holidays. Then we'll come back next year with four final stories fact-checking Hollywood Babylon. Join us then, won't you? Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. Today's episode was written, narrated, and produced by Karina Longworth. That's me. Our research and production assistant is Lindsay D. Schoenholtz. Our social media assistant is Brendan Whalen. This episode was edited by Cameron Drews. And our logo was designed by Teddy Blanks. For more information about this episode and other episodes, please go to our website, youmustrememberthispodcast.com. There you'll find show notes for every episode with information about our sources, music used, and much more. If you like the show, please tell anyone you can, any way that you can. You can follow us on Twitter, at RememberThisPod, and we're on Facebook and Instagram, too. And my book, Seduction, Sex, Lies, and Stardom in Howard Hughes' Hollywood, is available now from Amazon or your local independent bookstore. We'll be back next week with another tale from the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. Join us then, won't you? Good night. know that science solves crimes. Forensic science is exciting, challenging, and most of all, rewarding work. But there is a shortage of qualified individuals in this field. Hi, I'm Terry with Loyola University of Maryland's Forensic Science Department. Loyola is one of the only colleges in the country offering advanced degrees in forensic pattern analysis and biological forensics. Our courses, taught by forensic experts, feature hands-on training and small class sizes. They are based on real crime scene and forensic examiner training programs to ensure you are ready to make a difference. Our programs are open to students from a variety of academic backgrounds because we believe everyone can contribute to solving crimes. So what are you waiting for? Discover the excitement of forensic science at Loyola University, Maryland. 
Visit loyola.edu forward slash forensic for more information. That's loyola.edu forward slash forensic because you are ready to make a difference. Join one of Loyola University Maryland's forensic science programs today. Celebrate and save at Ashley's anniversary sale with Hot Buys, your choice of color starting at just $3.99. Ashley Sleep mattresses starting at $2.50. Plus, receive a free adjustable base with select mattress purchases and shop top mattress brands like Stearns & Foster, Tempur-Pedic, Purple, and Beautyrest Black with 60-month special financing only at Ashley. Subject to credit approval, no minimum purchase required. Minimum monthly payment, down payment, tax, and delivery may be required. See store for details.